Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Anger Company podcast. I have my favorite professor of all time, Megan, Dr. Megan, I should say. I don't know how to pronounce your last name, so I don't want to butcher it. No, (laughs) Megan is fine. (laughs) So, Megan, before we get into the hard-hitting questions, we should probably let people know how we met. Okay. And so that was 10 years ago, pretty much, 2007. Yeah. My freshman year. Completely freaks me out. Yeah, I know. I'm getting old. I'm 27. It's, it's creeping up on me. 30 is around the corner. Which means I'm too old to mention. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we met in writing cultures. Yep, writing cultures. The spring of your freshman year. Yep, yes, yeah. ma'am. It was a, a very challenging class. I would say that you were one of my most difficult professors to please, writing-wise. In a good way, though. It, it helped me in a long run. I think that my modus operandi for teaching (laughs) is focusing on the details. Yes. And when you can rationalize why you, at every sentence, it has weight, Mm -hmm. then you become more mindful of the construction of your argument. Yeah. But I tend to do focus a lot more on revision Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. on process writing rather than, okay, write a five-page paper and hand it in and then I'll give you feedback. I want you to revise and rethink. And and people either either love it or they leave the class going, I feel like I've been flushed on the toilet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I definitely felt like that a lot of the time, uh, Megan. But like I said, I loved it. It was a great class. So kind of leading into that, Megan, what made you become a professor? Not only a teacher, but a PhD Yeah, I honestly, there's probably a a number of different threads. I, if you would have asked me 15 years ago, was I going to pursue a PhD? The answer would have been a solid hell no. (laughs) Well, I shouldn't say 15. It was about 20 years ago. (laughs) Um, But when I did my master's degree, my idea was to either uh, teach within a high school Mm. or to go into editing because I had done editing throughout my undergraduate my senior junior and senior year of my undergraduate and then my graduate school my juniors my master's degree so I those were the two sort of avenues that I kind of thought of myself in but when I started um, my master's program a number of my professors were urging me to go on for my PhD and I I'll be honest I came from a a family that I, I was the first generation of college students at all. I, had, I come from a family of entrepreneurs and the family mantra was when you're 14, you get out of the house and get a job. Yep. <laughs> and then you start your own business mm-hmm. as soon as possible. So I didn't come from a culture of education. Mm-hmm. And when I had professors going, you've got skills, mm-hmm. you really should do this. And I knew I wanted to teach. I mean, a huge part of me wanted to teach anyway, I said, well, if they see something of value in this, maybe I should. And, and uh, when I got a full ride at Marquette to teach mm-hmm. as a graduate student and then have a stipend, a living stipend, I thought, you know, I'm not going into debt. And people <laughs> have said, do this. And I, it seemed like a good fit. Mm-hmm. So that's why I ended up pursuing a PhD. I, I did find, though, it was in a lot of ways very alienating. My PhD is in contemporary poetics, which is a field, it's looking at the, the poetics of identity formation in 
cosmopolitans, people who perceive themselves as citizens of the world. The number of people who I can talk to about that, <laughs> I can, you know, count on a single hand. Yeah. And so what I found uh, is that while I do love it at an intellectual level, it was not something that I saw as particularly vocational. And so what I really, really enjoy doing is teaching writing. I teach, I had an option really of teaching literature. I'm a generalist by trade. So I could have taught American or British or world literature. I teach the occasional class and I enjoy it, but I really like teaching writing. And it's because I can talk about just exactly what we were talking about at the beginning, helping people refine uh, their understanding and their value of language yeah, and the way that it can carry ideas forward and engage others or we can, you know, not take care for our language and then it fails us in many ways. Mm-hmm. So. And you answered it already, Megan, but why is language such a sensitive or attractive topic to you? So anything, language is very, very much from our birth we are cradled and we're born again a second time into language. It is a language, you know, language is a codification system by which we know ourselves in the world, which is why one of the things that I, I recommend to any person is to learn a second language and a third language because you start seeing, once you are totally inhabiting a different language, you really understand that there's different ways of being navigating and understanding the world so for me it's directly tied to cognition it's more importantly for you know you know under undergraduates understanding language is i mean language is power yeah even though we are moving into in a lot of ways post text yeah generation Mm -hmm. you really do need to be able to weigh your words understand your audience and be able to frame messages so that you're able to deliver them to your audience in persuasive, inspiring ways, or you're at a severe disadvantage in many, many different arenas. Mm -hmm. And a perfect segue to that, Megan, is how do you think technology is disrupting education, and particularly, I guess, in this case, writing? Yeah, I've seen that that both ways. I I also teach, so I teach part-time here, and I'm an administrator at Beloit. So I teach traditional undergraduates, and then I also teach at a technical college. So I teach in one of my classes, for instance, I have two-thirds of the classes English language learners, and then the other percentage is people with significant learning disabilities. And what I see with them is technology has really helped my students with dyslexia, for example, okay, or my students who are you know native Arabic speakers or Spanish speakers, mm-hmm. it does help for them to. It both alleviates some of the anxiety that they had coming from traditional classrooms, but it also it helps them to develop better communications. The biggest liability is with technology is that technology is a distraction. Mm-hmm. And so what I find is a lot of students don't want, they're not prepared and they're not trained to pay attention mm-hmm. to things because even online texts have hyperlinks. Yeah. They've got ads. They've got all these directional things where you can do sequential pass-throughs without having to spend any significant amount of time with a single 
the text. So it's training them to see that just because it's on a screen doesn't mean that it it isn't made of rhetorical choices. (laughs) (laughs) So that, you know, that's interesting. But I also have moved into teaching text and image, you know, courses. I teach communications, advanced communication courses where you have to communicate, develop a some sort of document with in-text either uh, graphics or you have to develop something which is readable for elderly who have potentially visual impairments and or they can't read small text. So you have to make those sorts of mindful decisions of text and image content based on who is your target audience. And I find myself using more, more and more developing assignments that have some sort of visual component or it's being delivered on an online platform. And Megan, one thing I thought was interesting, I was uh, LinkedIn stalking you. I saw that you have briefly stepped away from the classroom for a little bit. So what was your, I guess, what inspired that decision? Yeah, it's interesting. I was a visiting assistant professor for many years. And even a lot of my colleagues even thought that I had sort of exhausted my, usually that position. It's a six-year position and then you have to leave. I actually left after five years and with an open invitation to return. But the reason why is I had adopted a son and he was turning three. And from the moment he, he came home, I had to go back to school. It was a very, very, it was a bad timing thing. So he was just about to start preschool. And I thought I really, now is the best time for me to focus on my children, specifically the youngest and to, you know, teach part-time at home or to do some something in the nonprofit arena, because I've always done that as well. And it was very, very much a learning experience. I learned I'm not a domestic diva. <laughs> I never would have thought. <laughs> <laughs> I went through a process of mourning. Really? Oh, yeah. After so many years of teaching, wow. I was like, who am I? You know, and I don't get me wrong. Roman was definitely worth stepping, <laughs> stepping back for. However, I, was, I thought when all the kids went back to school, I felt this like urge. I need to be going across the campus. You know, it was really interesting. And what I ended up doing is um, doing consulting work mm-hmm. in nonprofit development. Really, really liked it. Made a lot of money for organizations, but realized I missed working with young people. Mm-hmm. So a couple of years ago, my colleagues here had they notified me that the position as program coordinator at Liberal Arts and Practice Center was opening, and I thought if there was any time to go back, it would be now. So that's why I'm back and teaching part time, and which is a good fit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Life is always changing. It is. It is. <laughs> so, I mean, you have a book out, mm-hmm. a children's book out. Yeah. So, if you could tell the audience a little bit about that. So it, the book is called Why Kwakunas Anasi, Master Hairstylist, Saved the Animal Kingdom. It's actually how Kwakunasi. <laughs> Sorry. Available on Amazon. Yes, it is available on Amazon. <laughs> actually, my we are sitting in my office and directly across from me and just to my right are two illustrations by the, the artist of that book, Brian Keepers. That is not an original story. That's a, a retelling of a classical Ghanaian tale. Um, with the great trickster Kwaku the, the trickster um, spider. 
And one of my friends who we were in undergraduate together and he is from Ghana. He gave me all these books knowing that I, I absolutely love children's books. So he gave me all these books and this particular fable resonated with me for a couple of reasons. It is telling the story of communities that are in, in distress because of bullying. I mean, what we would call bullying right now. And this was at the, we decided to do this project for a couple of reasons. The first and foremost, I've always been interested in philanthropy, specifically supporting artists. And Brian is a very, very talented artist, but had kind of dabbled in illustration, didn't know how to break in. And I said, well, why don't, why don't we create an art book that then you can use as a platform to potentially more work? to use it to, as a springboard for more work. And he, when he finally had the time, we sat down together and we, we developed the storyboard. And it was about a year and a half long project. Each of the illustrations for him took about 25 hours. And he just, it was fun. So fundamentally, we did create a very, very small press called Songbird Books. We discovered we are not interested in being a publishing house, mm-hmm. at least a traditional one. What I would like to do when I have world enough in time is to create a nonprofit. I mean, Taft Story, Songbird, become a nonprofit in which community groups, whether it be school classrooms or after school programs, can come together and develop stories and either work with an artist in order to develop the storyboards from which the artist would develop solid illustrations, or have the students work with art educator to develop the actual illustrations, and then help them to understand that stories craft community, Yeah, and community crafts stories, you know, that, you know, certain types of writing, you do have to close yourself off in the writer's garret and go at it, I've been there, but best thing that we have that binds us to one another is the stories that we share yes so I have a few other artists that I've worked with in the past that are interested in doing that and now I just really have to find the time sure Sure. so Megan last and final question what is your advice for students or just people in general that want to learn how to write better Mm. if you want to learn how to write better (laughs) read yeah One of the biggest challenges for teaching writing beyond the sort of distraction of technology, it can be, I'm not, it's a qualified statement, is that people don't really spend enough time with other people's voices. Mm -hmm. And so reading is one of the most profound ways of learning style, of learning the structure of argumentation, and of really starting to understand the potential for developing your own voice on a number of different issues. You know, you can read five books on where somebody dies, and I'm thinking novels novels at this point, but you're going to find a whole universe of ideas about how do we deal with death, because every character is going to respond to it in a different way. So writing, even in nonfiction, reading journals or newspapers, it affords us varieties of communication that then you draw on ultimately when you're developing your own voice. But you should also take a writing class of some sort. Mm-hmm. You know, 
take the time to throw yourself into writing situations, writing for specific audiences that you, you can't even imagine at this point. Because we tend to write out of utility. And what we really don't understand is that writing is so essential to the formation of the human intellect and the human soul. I agree. Yeah. Well, this was fun. Well, thank you. Did you have a good time? Yeah, I did. All right, sweet. Well, thank you guys for tuning in. Megan, it's always a pleasure to see you. I really appreciate you it. You too.